wanderlust gets in a man's blood. It's worse than the bubonic plague, I'll tell you. When you get bitten by the travel bug, it just it just bothers you all the time. And you never can sit still. And here I am home after a trip around the around the literal. And uh, things are by the way, uh, things are not changed that much. You come back here five minutes later. You know, it's good to be home though, you know, in in some ways. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, uh, you have to understand what I'm saying here, that uh, that when you walk into New York, and it is, you know, it happens to be my home, I come into, uh, into New York from Alaska. See, that's the, I don't think there's any greater contrast in the world than to come from Alaska to New York. It's an incredible contrast. And it's like going from A to Z, Alpha Omega. And the great moment when the plane landed out at uh, Kennedy Airport and they opened the doors and that first... Blast of fetid, stinking, miasmic New York air flooded in to that to that airplane. I just smelled it deep, and I could feel my lungs cringing. <sighs> I'm home. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. And then I walked out, and, and of course, at that point, uh, I, I, I plunged immediately back into the typical New York scene instantly. Almost, uh, it was almost like it was staged. I uh, I walked through the tournament, to quote the guy that was carrying the junk. I walked through the tournament, and I got on the outside there, and there were 428,000 people trying to get cabs and hitting each other with umbrellas and, and the yelling and hollering. And there's a big sign that floated over the... Have you seen it out there at Kennedy? There's a big sign that floats out over one of the main passenger terminals, and it says, Welcome to Fun City. And uh, somebody has stolen the N off <laughs> of the fun city. <laughs> oh, uh, difficult. I take the deep breath. Uh, and, and tonight, uh, since it is, you know, Saturday night, everybody's got the itch. Uh, and it's almost the last uh, weekend of summer. And the people, are, already you can see it in the eye, the, the fall syndrome is setting in. People have already given up on the summer. Loused it up again. It didn't go. They never got to the beach. Uh, all the groovy stuff that you were dreaming you were going to do last spring, you didn't do. And uh, now you're saying, all right, back to the thing here. Well, all right, back to the thing. And I'd like to uh, I'd like to make us a, a brief uh, public service moment here, a brief uh, uh, little uh, salute to a fellow citizen of ours. In this uh, great 20th century world, would you please, Matt, give me a little of that uh, that drum music there? The second one, I think, uh, the little uh, horns and honk. No, not not the uh, not the mood one. Give me the uh, the first one. Yeah, a little uh, little uh, salute music. Yeah, a little. That's it. Very good. That's a good salute. Hooray for Big Joe Roundy of Twin Falls. I the ho 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 ho. He has done it for all of us. Uh, uh, thank you, thank you, Matt. Reset that. I'm going to use that. I'm going to salute Joe, Big Joe Roundy of Twin Falls, Idaho, who I would never have heard of except for the fact that he really flipped his cork and did it for all of us. Big Joe Roundy, a temper tantrum over a frustrated motorist attempt to arouse an Orvoda service that's apparently out there in the West someplace to arouse a service station operator at 5.30 a.m. Sunday, ended with Joe Roundy of Twin Falls, Idaho, landing in the Humboldt County Jail. Roundy, in his rage, not only smashed windows at Gene Sullivan's 
gas station, but sideswiped a parked station wagon on the lot before he was finally subdued and held for sheriff's deputies. He just arrived there, and that big sign says, open 24 hours a day, and they weren't. And he flipped his cork. He wound up throwing rocks through the window and blowing the place up. Well, now, I understand Joe's feelings very much because Joe represents something that all of us have felt from time to time, the great discrepancy between the commercial and real life, uh, the, the fantastic gulf that exists between what uh, you, you're led to expect. How many times have you seen those beautiful commercials for gas stations? You know, because yes, it's a great place to visit, but please don't try to live here. I know it's groovy and you want to live here, but don't try because we got business to carry on. And you see this idyllic gas station with the sun hanging over it and palm trees. And then there's the other kind, too. There's the other one where, where the guy pulls in. Have you seen that one where the kid and this uh, chick pull into the gas station? And uh, he, he says to the guy, uh, <clears throat> give me uh, 50 cents for the regular, please. You've seen that when the guy walks around. He says, oh, of course, sir, of course. 50 cents for the regular, coming right up. And he opens up the thing, and he starts to squirt the gas in. And then he runs around the front, and he's got rags and hoses, and he starts to clean the guy's winch. And the kid says, oh, come on, please. You don't have to do that. He says, no, sir, sir, yes, sir. Uh, would you care if I cleaned off the back window, too, sir? And he runs around, and the girl's sitting there. She says, he's really going all off for us. And the announcer says, Yes, he goes all out for everybody who comes on the service station. He is selling Whoopi 8 with the new Dino Platformart special uh, secret ingredient, which will give you over 200 miles to gallon with that car of yours. And he sells service. Bump, ba-dum, bump. How long has it been, friend, since you had a guy voluntarily clean your windshield? How long has it been, friends, since you have driven into a gas station, and the guy has leaped out with a springy step and a clean uniform. Yeah, and a bow tie. Oh, they are. And they always have a square jaw like Smiling Jack. I'm usually being waited on by a group of toads that seem to be covered with a sort of a black, bluish stubble and who spit tobacco juice in my car every time I open the door. But, uh, the <laughs> and uh, have, you, have you always, have you suspected, though, that somewhere off in the middle distance... There is that ultimate gas station, the one they show in the commercial. You know, with a beautiful... Have you, have you seen the one with the beautiful girl comes out, and she's wearing this cute little uniform? Seen that one? And uh, and she's got a little hat on sideways. She looks so adorable. And, uh, uh, yeah, and I wonder how many people go into that service station. They see that in the commercial, say, so I'm going to go in there and see that girl. And, of course, what he gets is uh, two guys that uh, were dropouts from Clifton Junior High School trade school. And, uh, you know, they never learned how to work a chisel or anything. They finally threw them out. And now here they are working in the gas station, and they're playing two-handed rummy all night long. <laughs> oh, listen. But that's that's uh, that's part of our life. You know, we, we, we just know this. And and uh, I, I, uh, I have a thesis now, which I'm going to propose. And the thesis is that we're so involved in show business, all of us, every last one of us, that whatever show business is about, I mean, whatever the play, the movie, and I have to, today, you have to consider, uh, without question, you must consider the commercial as an integral part of show business. Do you, do you agree with me on that, Mac? Oh, absolutely. Many people have got their favorite commercial 
performers. Uh, you know, every time... Uh, uh, yeah, and, and, and they, they're nameless. They're just people who show up constantly in the commercials. And you say, oh, there he is again. Watch, he's really cute. The one there with the bald head, watch. And he's going to say something real good. And, uh, <laughs> and they, they develop fans. In fact, I have a friend who is ubiquitous in the commercials. And uh, he's he's got a, a, a typical commercial face. You know what the commercials look for, friends? They're not the the, the 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 I'm talking about the contemporary commercial. A few years ago, everybody in commercials was beautiful, and they had that faceless quality of uh, toothpaste ads. And no matter what they sold, they were beautiful people. But they were blandly beautiful. They were model agency people. You know the kind of guys that you see. If you notice the strange look on the faces of these men that appear in clothing ads, uh, these sleek ads for in, uh, in, in the New Yorker, full-page ad, and it'll say, uh, Glunk and Schlockmiler, uh, tailors to the elegant people, and for the man with a mod look. And here are these two guys leaning against the fence. You know, one's got his hand on his hip, and the other's looking kind of, uh, kind of vaguely passionate at, at the, uh, the second one. And yet there's a there's a general aura that hangs over the thing of a peculiar kind of apologia. These two guys, you know, <laughs> here they are, six feet nine, and they're uh, they're they're spending their lives modeling corduroy jumpers. And uh, you know, for a girl, that's all right. But the, but but a guy who's six feet nine weighs two hundred and seven pounds to spend his life modeling corduroy jumpers for ads in the New Yorker. It develops an apologetic look in the eye. Like, uh, don't judge me for what I do, friends. Inside is a beautiful soul. And uh, because I have this fantastic, beautiful body, I, I cannot help it. And it's, it just hangs over it. And so ultimately, we've got to consider the commercial as a part of contemporary showbiz. And this friend of mine, who is uh, one of the big guys in the commercial world, he doesn't even do plays. He used to do plays and stuff, you know. And uh, he used to, yeah, he you know, did things in movies. But in the movies... The, the guys that are kind of funny-looking never make it. They're always the friend that uh, Jack Lemon runs into briefly in the bar in one scene while he's waiting for Shirley MacLaine, the stupid friend. Uh, so, you know, you're never going to have a, a career out of that. And uh, <laughs> it's that great horde. Have you noticed how things have changed in that respect? That at one time in life, uh, not too long ago, the world centered around... The heroic figure, the the hero, uh, he he was, and and that was all, and the beautiful girl, the ingenue, and so yes, the ingenue, the ingenue is the beautiful girl that the hero you know finally makes the scene with, and uh, and and her mother usually was involved, played by Elaine Stritch, uh, and and so but yeah, she played the mother, and she she's continually playing the loud voiced mother, you know the one, <laughs> and so yeah, this was the classical play. But now today, things have changed, and the camera is now focusing on the skulking figures in the background who used to be just extras. And so if you were going to write Hamlet today, you would certainly not concentrate on the Prince of Denmark and his uncle, the king. You'd have to concentrate on the second grave digger. And, of course, the key word is digger. He's a digger, see? And... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and and, and uh, you'd, you'd concentrate. Yes, it had to be viewed from the second gravedigger, and the entire play would be based on the premise that the second gravedigger has met the first gravedigger, and they're now talking about these, you know, these these guys that are making it big, and one of them is the prince. And suddenly, I could never feel sorry for the prince. I never could relate to him. No, I mean, what the hell? He's a prince. I mean, not many of us make that make it that big, Keith. Uh, he's the prince, not only the prince, he's the prince of Denmark. He's not the prince of Graustark or some little joint, you know, in middle Europa. He's the prince of Denmark. He's got the world, why do you know what? And uh, I always felt that uh, that he was a spoiled brat. He was bugged because he didn't make king. And uh, he very... Well, no, no, no. I, everybody, everybody, no, no, because you know what we do? We tend, we're so Freudian-oriented that we tend to forget reality. And so everybody's looking for something to Freud, you know, why he's mad. Uh, why is Hamlet bugged? Well, they, you know, they bring in Oedipus and the whole thing of the mother. The most obvious one of all is that, you know, it's kind of, here you are, you're, you're the son of the king, right? And all of a sudden, one day the king, you know, the king is knocked off. Well, you assume you're going to be king, right? What happens? In comes his crummy uncle and takes over and is the king. Well, that's pretty obvious why he's bugged. And not only is he, is he, you know, is he king, he's making a scene with the guy's mother, the whole bit, you know. And so he's got a lot of things to be mad about, but the most important is he hasn't made king. I mean, after all, every prince is looking forward all of his life to being, you know, the, being the top big shot. Because let me tell you this, there's nothing worse than being second place. As a matter of fact, you remember how everybody loved the Mets when they were in 10th? All right. And they loved them when they were in first, right? You don't hear anybody loving the Mets now that they're in third and second, you see. Because the minute you're in second or third, you're so close that the comparisons are odious. But when you're ninth, you're a lovable failure. And uh, nobody compares you with the first place guy. They love you for what you are, a bumble. You're, you're a stumbler. You're a flubber. And, and I, I can just say that, the, that today the, the whole switch has been on the other direction. So now, so now the commercials, you see, have gone that direction. And they've, they've moved away from the, the heroic character. And now the, the lovable people in commercials are guys that uh, would, would have been just in the mob in regular showbiz. And I predict this. I predict that ultimately the movies will go that way. I say that the commercial today leads the world in, in uh, avant-garde. Have you noticed that, that, uh, that the uh, John Frankenheimer-type cuts and all that, you know, the, the very hip-type editing, was first done in commercials when Frankenheimer was doing it? And Richard Lester, you know, the guy that did the Beatles pictures, he did that stuff long before they made the Beatles pictures, doing them in commercials. So the commercial is affecting art rather than art affecting the commercials. And so ultimately, the little short, fat guy will be the star of the play. Uh, and the movie. In fact, there's one, uh, what, what's the one there most currently? Uh, the one about the, the generation gap, the father, the schlunky father, walks around with a rifle and all that stuff, which, of course, is a sheer you-know-what. But nevertheless, uh, he's, he's a star. So my little friend, I, I'm delighted to report, the little guy with the bald head is an old buddy of mine, and now he's a big star in commercials, and people follow him down the street. They really do. I'll tell you one of his commercials. You know the one uh, in which uh, the lady plumber shows up and she's in this French restaurant? And he says, oh, but look at the sink. The sink is filthy. You know that one? Well, that's him. 
Now he's big, you know, he's really big, and he couldn't get arrested uh, just a couple of years ago. Now he's, you know, he's on his, the fantail of his yacht, and the agents are lining up, and uh, he only accepts commercials that are in full color with stereo sound. He, uh, and he's, you know, he's big. He, he also was the guy, do you remember the one that in the lunchroom when he showed up and he, he's kind of looking bugged and he's wearing a business suit and he says, give me a cup of coffee and a piece of pie, Joe. And Joe says, what's the matter? He says, oh, it's been a, I haven't sold a house in two months. It's, uh, I mean, what's going on? It's like I have bad breath. You know, the one where they go, bad breath. And he says, yes, right here, try this. You've seen him in that one. He was wonderful in that. And uh, you didn't you, you didn't want to buy any of the Alka Seltzer, but you wanted to buy a house from him. He was such a cute house salesman, and now uh, he's making it big in the character roles. You know, he says, "This thing is this thing is filthy. Look at this Josephine. I cannot. I must close the restaurant. Uh, oh, a lot the Zors. <laughs> he goes, "Alors, zap, zap, alors." Well, uh, he's big now, and uh, because the commercial now concentrates on what used to be called in the business the ugly people or the media. You see, everybody who isn't beautiful is ugly. You know, the term beautiful implies ugly, too. I mean, you can't have plus without minus, right, Mac? I mean, you can't have negative without positive. You can't have male without female. And so if uh, we have the term beautiful people, we also must have the ugly people. And uh, how does it feel to be one of the ugliest friends? I mean, <laughs> that's not easy. What are you going to do? But uh, our day has come. Uh, let's see, do we have a spot in there? Hit one big for me, Mac. Big. South of the equator, the trade winds are soft and warm. Come along with Pontus to Fiji's legendary ports of paradise, to New Zealand with its geysers and glaciers, to Australia. Fly Qantas. Fly Qantas on a tour that treats you better all around. From California, only $995 for 17 South Pacific days. And just about everything. The South Pacific. It's all out there, waiting. See your travel agent and fly Qantas. Fly Qantas! Listen, I could tell you stories about the commercial world that would curl your hair, uh, but uh, at how princely as some of the commercial people are. You know, there's one guy, he's been a second-rate actor for years, but uh, he's on every other voiceover. And uh, he's, he's the ubiquitous voice of television commercials. You know the one that goes, and uh, you'll like the flavor. You know that one? And uh, you'll like the flavor. Qantas. Wah, 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 wah. And, uh, ooh, you, you know, but the, he's in. And uh, as long as you're in, that's all that counts. You know, speaking of being in, I got a letter the other day. You, know, you get some very embarrassing letters when, you, when you're a writer. Uh, and I've, I've been doing a lot of writing. And, oh, yes, you, you get strange letters when you're a writer. For example, I got a letter the other day from the University of Southern California. And, uh, Jeff, I was very official, see, so I opened it up. And it turns out that... Uh, Somebody's doing a research paper there. 
and they've been reading my short stories in Playboy and all this. And, and the guy says, I want you to please write me a short note on uh, what the early influences in uh, the literary world that were exerting upon your uh, consciousness which have caused you to write the way you write. I thought about that. I says, now, which way shall I play that? Now, how, how many people have ever been asked what, what, <laughs> what caused them? What were your early influences? What if I came in, Matt, I ask you, what, uh, could you please uh, write a brief paragraph, uh, brief paragraph on the, the early influences that caused you to be Matt Bayless? Uh, how did you get to be Matt Bayless? Obviously, you were just born a simple, mewling, puking babe at one point. But then there must have been early influences that have set forever the tenor of your life. Please, in one paragraph, outline how you come to be like you are. Well, how do you handle that? You become... There's two ways to handle it. Either you tell the truth, or you become pompous. And therefore, tell him what he wants to hear. See, in the literary world, pomposity is a very important product. So if I were Norman Mailer, I would write back... One of the very earliest influences on my early reading was the day that I discovered Vanity Fair. After that, of course, it was one short hop to uh, War and Peace. After I'd read all of Dostoevsky and realized that Dostoevsky was weak on character analysis and he was rather diffuse in plot work, I moved on to Saki, the famous uh, short story writer. And I see, that's, uh, that's the kind of stuff they want to hear, you see. But if you tell them the truth, that you were heavily influenced by... Uh, Johnny Weissmuller, or by uh, Tarzan and Jane. Nobody wants to hear that. And if you tell them the truth, they put it down. They'll write back and say, please send us the serious stuff now, what it really was. Well, I thought about that, see, for a long time after I got the University of Southern California letter. Thank you. This is WOR New York. And by the way, uh, incidentally, now I am being quoted as an er as an influence on people. There's a, there's a piece that the... One of the writers is doing for the New York Times. I was called by the Times the other day. And they're doing a piece, uh, this writer, one of the early influences. You listen to Shepard at night. And that makes you feel groovy, you know, to be an influence. But uh, nevertheless, uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, this letter made me think. I thought, what am I going to say to these guys, see? So I picked up the phone, and I called home. I called my mother, see? I says, hey, Ma. She says, yes? I said, uh, Mother... Uh, I want you to send all them books that are in the basement there. You remember all those books I had when I was a kid? Yes. There was a, a brief pause, like, no, don't tell me. See, I said, just wrap them up and send them. You can send them junk rate. It doesn't make any difference, you know. The, the, all the books. I mean the ones that Aunt Glenn gave me for my birthday, the whole junk, you know. So she said, all right. And so a couple of days go by, and then I arrive, in the mail arrives this 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 tattered package with all my junk books. And these, are, these are my influences. Do you want to hear an influence on my early life? Do you want to hear a quotation from it? All right. One of the big moments occurred in my literary developmental period occurred at the age of eight. In fact, there is a uh, there is a uh, an inscription inside of it from my Aunt Glenn. It says, Happy Eighth Birthday. Eight years old is a wonderful age. Well, I don't know how the hell my Aunt Glenn knows that. She was never eight. As a matter of fact, my Aunt Glenn, I think, was born wearing a girdle and a pair of horn-rimmed glasses at the age of 47, and uh, with a bun on the back of the head, you know. But uh, nevertheless, uh, Aunt Glenn gave me this book, and, and I read this book in about eight and a half milliseconds. 
I absorbed it. I'm telling you, it was just like, uh, you know, like an octopus absorbing a sunfish. And I dug it, and I read this book like 28 times that year. Now, I hadn't thought about this book for a long time uh, until it arrived. I looked at it, and I says, oh, my God, yes, it had influenced me. Now, do you want to hear it? Give me a little mood music, please. I will quote to you from Chapter 1 of one of the early influences of an American writer. A little mood music. And so now we plunge back into time, back through the misty, vast, sweeping graynesses of eternal time past. That's not bad, is it? <laughs> and tonight's literary influence on the contemporary author is entitled A Viking of the Sky, written by an author named Hugh McAllister and published by Salfield Press. Chapter One, entitled Nighthawk. Oh, how I wish I was up there, muttered Hal Dane to himself as he cocked an eye upward into the far heights of the moonlit sky. In mind, Hal Dane was already just below the stars, riding the clouds in a winged ship. Before him, an imaginary instrument board ticked the latest thing in indicator, controller, tachometer. What the hell is an indicator? I've been flying for years, and I have not yet flown an airplane that was equipped with an indicator, and certainly controller. Uh, and all the while, like the other half of a dual personality, his hands and feet mechanically guided his rattletrap old truck along the ruts of the lonesome country road. On the downgrades, Hal's left hand, with skill of long practice, chocked a brakeless wheel with a wooden block. And on the upgrades, his right foot judiciously kicked a wire that let on extra, quote, juice for the pull. In Hilton, Hal's home village, folks laughed considerably over the western flyer, which a green daub of paint on the sideboards flaunted to the world as the ancient truck's title. But folks didn't laugh at the boy who persistently patched up the rattle trap and drove it. Anyone knew that it took genius of sorts even to hold the contraption to the straight road. For all of its decrepitude, Hal had to hang on to the old truck it furnished his living, and a living for his mother, and his great-uncle Telemachus, who was, quote, stove up with rheumatiz. The weeks when hauling was brisk, the truck even earned a few strange luxuries, such as uh, Hal Dane would want, bottles of odd-smelling glue, old wire springs and bits of metal from Kerrigan's junk pile, and now and then, a precious book full of diagrams of aeronautical engines. Usually Hal got a chance to make at least one trip a day hauling garden truck. All right, there's the influence. Now, how do you like that? Now, it was an influence. Now, what did Hal Dane do in this book? Well, I'll tell you what he did. Uh, I'll go on a little further. Let's see. There's a whole thing there about grit. You notice one thing about Hal Dane would never appear in a book today. It was a kid that was supporting a lot of people. Did you notice that? He was supporting his mother and his brother. <laughs> he was supporting his uncle. He was driving a truck. <laughs> no hero in a book would ever do that today. I mean, a kid's book. 
And uh, one of the big things, one of the big things, of course, in his life, he was a, he was a flyer, and I, he was going to be a flyer. It says Hal Dane's air-minded brain was seething with spirals and immelmans and three-point landings. One of the great events of his life, the state air meet at Interboro, had been over for a week, but every flight and entry was still fresh in the boy's mind. He lived them over again. By a twist of the imagination, old man Herman's two milk cans, rhythmically banging against Grocer Kane's crate of lard buckets, seemed almost the roar of a stunt plane, warming up for action. Hal could almost think of himself now, seeing in that empty stretch of sky above the host of planes that had formed the flying circus of last week. There had been Rex Rayner, famous pilot, who stunted upside down. There had been aerial rope swingers and ladder climbers. There had been Great Scott... There had been Ted Jones himself, the great lone eagle. All right. Now, I, I, I submit to you that this would... would ne- I, I don't think Mailer would ever admit that he was influenced by anything like this. But I also submit to you that he was. <laughs> I think all of us, in one way or another are far more influenced by the stuff we read as kids that's given to us as kid literature than anything we read after that. I'm just submitting this to you. And I think that the stories you read in your second-year reader, which hardly any of you can even remember actually reading, form your attitudes and form, you know, the real thinking that you actually... Uh, you, and and this, is a, this is true of the comics, I think the the kid of eight who's reading the comics is uh, learning more about... I wonder how many kids today think of themselves as Charlie Brown. They, You know, they see themselves as Charlie Brown. In other words, they're being influenced by Charlie Brown. Incidentally, you notice Charlie Brown's a loser? I wonder how many kids are being trained to be losers who think of themselves already as losers at the age of eight because they read Charlie Brown. And, you know, they, they, the whole bit of the loser, the mystique of the loser is very important today. Somehow people today relate losing with virtue. Somehow if you're a loser, you're virtuous. And if you're a winner, you're some kind of a fink. That's a good... <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's a fascinating uh, uh, juxtaposition, twisting of values. And yet uh, it's, it's running through much of our literature. The loser is always somehow a beautiful person merely because he's losing. And it's always implied that if society were better, he would be a winner. In which case, then, society would make movies about what a fink he is. You know, the, the point being, <laughs> the, minute, the minute you're a winner, you're obviously a bad news. You're, you're, you're establishment. And, and so that's running through. And I'm curious how many guys at the age of 46, uh, say 40 years from now, roughly, are going to be laying on some uh, some couch. Of course, by that time, they won't have uh, human a- analysts. There'll be all kinds of computer analyses going on there. And they'll have uh, this, uh, you know, analysis X-Teen-42G will be plugged into his brain. And uh, it'll be stimulating his brain, you know, the various parts of his brain with electrical impulses and setting off trains of remembrance. And, uh, the, the uh, of course, they're now approaching the key moment in the electronic analysis. He's laying there on his sack. He's been going there now for six months. And this, of course, this machine is very subtle. Remember that, man. It does not just approach him with, like, uh, electrolysis shock or anything. Very subtly, 
You, of course, you realize your brain is an electrical instrument, don't you? I mean, it is, you know. They can measure brain waves by various electrical impulses that the brain creates. And on the other hand, the brain uh, translates electrical impulses that it receives. So if here's an example. So if you reach out and you touch the desk or you touch a table and uh, your finger touches this thing, well, there's a little tiny... A minute electrical impulse that travels rapidly up through the nervous system, up through your arm and through the shoulder, and it goes into the main circuit there, uh, you know, the central switchboard, and it rushes right up through your neck and zap into the brain, and the brain then uh, it takes this little electrical impulse and sends it to the right rectifier. See, it's, it has a lot of diodes and stuff. It sends it to the right rectifier, and it says, Translation, finger is touching desk. Desk is not... Yes, desk is cold. Finger touching desk. And then you say, oh, I see. Uh-huh. Now, all of this happens on a subconscious level, but it happens. And uh, this is exactly the way your brain works, uh, very roughly paraphrased. Now, if you could have an electrical piece of equipment that you could hook right into the brain, you see, that would transmit... Uh, electrical impulses exactly of the same type that your finger transmitted, you would think you're touching a desk, even though you're not. You're just lying there, see? And so uh, the, the man programs it. See, there'd have to be some kind of a man there. He programs it. And uh, uh, this machine then feeds impulses into your head. And uh, they feed an impulse into the way in the back recesses of your brain. Now, it's, it's, it's a nitty-gritty impulse. What caused you to be this fink? See? Now, they had approached that very carefully. They, 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 they mousetrapped you, you see. And now they plugged it into the back of your neck. And, and uh, he's, push, he's pushed the button that says nitty-gritty impulse. And bam, little thing goes off your head. And then that momentary look of beclouded innocence that skitters across the patient's eyes. <gasps> he gasps. Oh! <gasps> Yes, I see it now. <laughs> oh, my God, I see it now. That's called the aha experience. Now, for those of you who have ever had any experience at all in, in the psychology, you know that the aha experience is the great moment of self-discovery. When the person, and he's been led by the hand by the psychiatrist to the point where he makes that discovery. He remembers an incident. He remembers a moment that has caused him forever to hate spinach. Or he, you know, forever, he's, uh, he hates girls now. And uh, he wonders why. Well, they've taken him back to that age at six when at that Valentine party that terrible thing happened, which he has forgotten. But the scar tissue has grown over his brain until finally now he hates all women. And uh, that moment of discovery is called the aha experience. You know that, huh? Oh, yeah. Aha. I see it now. Here he's laying on the sack, see? Oh, my God, yes. Oh, oh, yes. I remember. My mother was at the store. Yes, I see it now. She was at the store. And I I, I was taking reading. I just learned how to read. And, and the, oh, God, oh, I can't stand it. Oh, yes. I, I was looking. I was looking at... I see it now. It's a newspaper. And many years ago, when I was a kid, there was a there was a cartoon called uh, Peanuts. Peanuts. And it was this kid named Charlie Brown. 
And one day I was reading this Charlie Brown. And uh, he was on the telephone. Said, oh, I can't say anymore. No, no, no. Please don't make me say it. No, no. Oh, wah, wah, wah. And the machine says, go ahead. Now, now, it'll be all right. Nobody's going to say anything about it. Go ahead, old man. It's okay. See, it's saying this electronically. It's sending little impulses into your head of reassurance that it's not going to think on you. It's not going to tell the rest of the world what an idiotic crumb you are. No, no, no. <laughs> all right, all right, I'll tell you. Oh, my God, it was terrible. I'm... My mother was at the store. I remember my old man was down at the... He was down at the Golden Eagle Tavern drinking beer. And uh, my kid brother, he was... I don't know where he was. He always got everything, you know. There, there, there. Easy. It's all right. It's all right. He always got everything. My mother never loved me. My old man didn't love me. My kid brother got everything. And I'll tell you how it came. This is, of course, 40 years from now of a kid who is now listening to me at this moment and thinking that I'm doing a funny bit, which he thinks is ridiculous. Kid, you better listen, because you're going to have to remember this thing 40 years from now. There was this kid named Charlie Brown. He was in the comics. And uh, he had these friends. There was one called Lucy. Oh, oh she bad. Oh, she was so bad. No wonder I hate women. Oh, she was so bad. I'll never forget one time she said this awful thing to Charlie Brown, like, you're stupid, Charlie Brown. And she was talking to me, me. I was Charlie Brown. You're stupid. And I've never talked to a girl ever since. They all think I'm stupid. I'm stupid. There, 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 easy. There, there, easy. It's going to be all right. Go on, tell us more. Well, Charlie Brown was on the phone. He was on the telephone. And uh, he was talking to his friend of his... His friend named Linus. And his friend... And he said, Linus, I'm sorry I couldn't get to the party today because uh, I had a cold. My mother would let me out of the house. And then he said, the next picture, he says, well, This is Charlie Brown. Don't you remember you invited me to the party? Oh... You didn't notice that I wasn't there? Well, uh, I just called to tell you I wasn't. Okay. And then he hung up the phone. They didn't even remember that he wasn't there. They didn't know. They didn't care. <laughs> Man, that's what my life has been. I'm Charlie Brown. <laughs> Charlie Brown. A little more music, please. I'm Charlie Brown. <laughs> So tonight, this public-spirited-minded station, deeply concerned with your inner life, has brought you a public service vignette. Losers everywhere, beware. You are forming a pattern that you could regret, ultimately. We tell you nightly to give up smoking. We tell you on the hour, every hour, to give up breathing smog. We tell you almost to the point of ad nauseum to stop uh, polluting the atmosphere. And tonight we tell you, be careful. You're liable to be a loser all your life. And it's going to be known ultimately to a famous psychiatrist as the Charlie Brown Syndrome. In capital letters, what had Charlie Schultz wrought? You know, there's, there's, there's validity to this, right, man? 
And I'm just curious how many guys are being influenced. And and uh, have you noticed that that uh, I'll tell you this that the that the big tough angry uh, uh, dominating woman is becoming uh, a prevalent theme in in most uh, plays and uh, <laughs> and it's producing some interesting side effects. And I wonder how many people have ever looked at uh, at the Charlie Brown and the Schultz cast of characters as uh, not only creating but adding to that whole thing. Uh, Lucy, who's a famous character, of course, you notice how domineering and rotten and uh, completely loudmouthed and uh, totally selfish she is? Well, I suspect that this, beyond all of the, uh, you know, the verbal uh, brouhaha about things like Charlie Brown, you know, this whole business of... Uh, of supposed religiosity in it, which I think is pure glop. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, this is to talk about pomposity. Uh, beside all that stuff, I think one of the great secrets of the success of the Charlie Brown strip has been that the Charlie Brown strip has catered to the loser, uh, not only catered to the loser, but has made the loser feel uh, that he is basically a, a superior person. The loser, really, uh, in short, Charlie Brown is the sweet, simple, beautiful person who means no one any harm. He never loses because of, you know, his basic ineptitude. He loses because other people drop fly balls. He loses because, uh, you know, notice that his losing is almost always because of uh, the other people's failure to realize what, uh, what a beautiful person he is. And I, and I think that one of the reasons that this strip is so successful is because it caters to that feeling of superiority, which is uh, so comforting to many basic losers. Now, they be, may be losers because of a lot of things. They may be losers because of no talent, which is the most, which is the most consistent reason why to lose. Uh, they may be losers because of, uh, well, I'd say because possibly bad uh, personality, any one of a dozen things. But the fact is that that today we, we live in a time when, when losing in itself is a virtue. And uh, now coming close to winning is not. There's only two virtues in our, in our world today. Like everything else, it's polarized. Our world is very polarized. Uh, politics. Is, we don't even have to talk about the polarization in politics or in uh, generation, age, one thing or another. But I wonder how many people have ever talked about the win-lose polarization. Now, what is the win-lose polarization? Well, there's only two good states to have. Either win, and I mean win. Joe Namath uh, last year was a hero because he was a winner. So was Steve, uh, Tom Seavers. Win. When you win, you're a hero. And when you lose abjectly, you're a hero. It's the guy that winds up in third place who's in trouble in a ten-team league. It's the guy, you know, nobody worries about that. In fact, that's the quickest way to get fired as a manager. You notice they never fired Casey Stengel when he was in tenth place. But they did fire Wes Westrom when they went up to eighth. Did you notice that? That's important to remember. And and uh, and any manager will tell you. I mean, uh, I've known plenty of big league managers in my time. Any manager will tell you. He says, "If I can't take first, give me last." 
And I said, why? The first time I heard it, and the, this, this cool manager said, let me tell you this, when you wind up last, everybody in town demands that the owners do something about getting you ball players." And he says, you become a sort of reverse hero. And uh, this is quite true if you, if you look back over recent history. He says, but it, if you win, then everybody applauds you too. He says, but then you're really in trouble. Because you gotta, you got to keep winning. The minute you drop down to second place, they're after your scalp then. And, uh, you know, you don't hear so much about Gil Hodges anymore, do you? Remember, Gil Hodges could have run for God, you know, a couple of... <laughs> well, it's because they're in second. That's the worst. That's... Now, if the Mets suddenly plummeted to last again, I suspect there would be... You notice those signs. There was a great difference in signs, too. You see that out at, the, out at Shea Stadium, uh, that, the, that the signs at one point were sardonically, ironically humorous. Do you remember when they used to hold up big signs that would say, How long? Or uh, some guy would hold up a sign with just an exclamation point. Or, uh, or uh, I remember one day going out there and, and a guy held up a sign. All it said was, Nice try. <laughs> well, now those signs, which were great, they, they denoted something, you see. I think they were, they were part of that Charlie Brown syndrome. See, everybody went out to the Mets and felt, gee, isn't it groovy to see a bunch of other stumble bumps? And they're playing in the majors. That's what's so great about it. You know, Walter Mitty and uh, the whole business. Well, then all of a sudden, the Mets turned on their fans like tigers. And that, they, they, they washed their hands of the old tradition. Nobody ever even mentions... Uh, uh, Richie Ashburn any longer. You notice it's like he never existed. Nobody even talks about Frank Thomas, who drove in, he hit 36 home runs. How many of you remember the great shortstop the Mets had in the twilight days of his career? Who was it? That's right. One of the great pro ball players of the past two decades. Nobody talks about poor old Roy anymore. Well, because they washed their hands of that tradition, and now they're the winners. You know, beautiful Tom Seaver and his lovely wife, Nancy. And uh, <laughs> it's like it's one name, you know. And, uh, and so they go out and they win the pennant. And everybody goes, ape, I was here and I did too. Everybody screams and yells. And then, of course, there's that curious vacuum that hangs in your mind. Now what? Oh, yes, believe me, there's, this is one of the great curses of mankind, that once you achieve paradise, there's only one thing left to try. That's right. And I suspect that's one of the reasons why our country's in trouble today. I travel all around the world, and, I, and I'm sorry to have to admit to you, friends, that if I've, every place I've visited in the world, this, this country right now, is probably as close to an earthly paradise for most people than any place that's ever existed in the country, in the world. When I say earthly paradise, people uh, have mobility, they have access to things, most people. They have, uh, they have uh, leisure time. And have you noticed that as this happens, now we've achieved, we've achieved almost that, uh, what Marx would have considered an earthly paradise. You know, the worker's world, where, <laughs> where the average worker is making $400 a week, and, and uh, he owns the factory practically, and the whole bit. And so what? A great dissatisfaction has set in. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, it's part of the polarization scene, and, and you can find it going with, uh, now we want to try hell a while. So we've had a taste of paradise. Now let's try hell. Maybe that'll give us a you know a real kick, the ultimate kick. And uh, have you noticed how big the devil is getting? That's very important. But among the affluent, Satanism is growing. The worship of hell. The worship of evil. 
the worship of the river Styx and, and Sharon and Charybdis and the whole crew. Well, the time has got to come, you know, when Charlie, when, when you take the Mets now, the Mets are up there and there's a kind of a hanging sense of loss. It's like, can you imagine what would happen if Charlie Brown, now, now Charles Schultz is, is smarter than that, I'm talking about the, the strip. Can you imagine Charlie Brown? That strip starts out. It shows Charlie on the mound. You know, the, the usual ball game he's always playing. It's Charlie on the mound, say. And you see Charlie winding up. And then you hear, whoosh, there's a shot of just whoosh, a bat missing. In the next picture, you see Charlie winding up again. And then the next picture, whoosh, a bat missing. And then the third picture of Charlie, you see him winding up, he throws the ball, and then there's a tremendous crowd scene of millions of people hollering, a no-hitter, a perfect game, a no-hitter, a perfect game in a World Series, Charlie Brown is the first man in history. I want to tell you, he would lose at least 97% of his fans in 12 minutes. Charlie Brown did something. He really pulled it off. You do not pitch a perfect game in a World Series unless you've got something on the ball, friends. I mean, you better have something more than that slow knuckler you've been throwing up to your Aunt Clara. You better have something going real good. And so, there'd be hundreds of people looking. What's the matter? Run out of me. Sell out. The Fink sold out. And incidentally, that's part of the loser's syndrome. All losers believed they could be winners if they sold out. I submit to you that every loser I've ever met is looking for the place where they're buying. And he hasn't found the tote window yet. Where are they making the offers? Where can I go to sell out? Bring it up, big man. And so we'd like to salute the losers everywhere tonight. Oh, let's go. He's coming into it. Bring him in there. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Just keep keep playing there. Keep hitting them drums. I'm going to go, man. I'm going to make it this time. I'm going to make it this time. Oh, a true loser. Just when my big moment comes, we run out of time. I was just about to do my tap dance, which was going to get me on the Merv Griffin show. Following, following, uh, gee, who was that, uh... Somebody made that big Technicolor movie, Eroticus. Ah, uh, it doesn't matter. And so, friends, tonight, I'd like to salute all of you who 40 years from now are going to be laying on that eternal couch trying to figure out where you learned all this. How come you grew up to be a stumbler with everybody around you? But don't worry, they won't either because they're reading Charlie Brown, too. And they think he's so cute. Bringing a big, heavy, big Mac. Mac, Mac, big, big, big. I say big. And we'd like to thank the engineering department. We'd like to thank Jerome Robbins for the choreography tonight. We'd like to uh, thank uh, Al Prince for his magnificent production and directorial work. We would like to uh, thank Cy Seymour for the lighting on tonight's production. Incidental work, incidental music was done by High Iberback. We would like to also thank Jack Webb who produced additional dialogue for use on tonight's special program. This has been a public service broadcast of this concerned radio station. Overseas facilities by the Armed Forces Radio Network.
accordion by Manny's Music Shop. Bagels by Mrs. Cy Seymour. Orange drink by Needix. Program printed by Chicanery Press. The end. <laughs>